This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. These kids have a chance. Like, the reason it matters so much is because they're not doomed. They're not done for. It doesn't matter what happened to them. They can come back. They can thrive again. They can learn. They can rediscover their, I mean, so because we have, we, because we know that that's why we have to be, work so hard to make a better life for these kids. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Stolen Year with Anya Kamenetz. Anya is a journalist focused on generational justice. Her current projects include a kids' climate podcast for Noggin, Nickelodeon's educational brand, and work with K-12 Climate Action to include climate in children's storytelling. Anya has previously worked as an education correspondent for NPR and a staff writer for Fast Company magazine. She contributed to the New York Times, Washington Post, New York Magazine, and Slate, and has won multiple awards for her reporting on education, technology, and innovation. Anya is the author of five books, Generation Debt, DIYU, The Test, and The Art of Screen Time. And her latest book, which we're going to be talking about in depth today, which is just released, is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. She lives in Brooklyn with her family. Anya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Dan. So this is a powerful, a powerful, powerful topic. Um, As Mm -hmm. I was reading your latest work, I was uh, filled with lots of emotions um, and was going back and forth between living it through my own life, our kids' lives, our clients' lives, um, and also trying to get that perspective of a historical uh, perspective of how did we get here and how did this pandemic really not only create so much stress and devastation, but also show the cracks that we have had in our culture for a very long time. Thank you so much for summing it up so beautifully. That is exactly what I went through writing the book while also parenting my own daughters. And that is what I'm hoping that people get from it. 
So thank you. When did you decide that this was where you needed to spend your time? (laughs) (laughs) And spend my time. I mean, that's such a loaded question, right? Because of course, my husband and I both had full-time jobs when the pandemic hit. Um, Probably this book exists because of our downstairs neighbor, because instead of being stuck entirely without childcare, as many parents were, she agreed to come into our bubble and to trade 20 hours a week for a break on rent. So somehow with half-time childcare and a lot of iPad, uh, we managed to keep all of this up. But I just, I knew because of my personal experience and the vantage that I had, that I was able to understand what was going to happen really early. Mm-hmm. And because I have a great editor at Public Affairs, Ben Adams, I'd already done two books with him. He and I started talking really early and it wasn't long before he said, you know, I think this is a book. And I was like, I don't have time to write a book proposal. He's like, you don't have to write a book proposal. Just write, send me the article that you just wrote, write me in a, a description and I will, this book has to happen. So mm. it was just one of those, like, he's a father. He had a third child during the pandemic and yeah, like people mm-hmm. saying like, you know, you're in this position, like somebody's got to be p- taking notes. And I'm not the only one, but like that, that really was what it was. And, and someone does have to be taking notes. Uh, <laughs> the, the all along there is what is, was this seemingly, I don't know if it's a paradox, this contradiction or this riddle of keeping people physically safe out of the hospitals and alive versus like physical health versus mental health. And of course, when we look at the mental health struggles are for people of all ages who were became isolated. But as you point out, taking kids away from the social structure, the social contract of school, which is, learning, which is food, which is safety, which is daycare, um, is huge. And I don't, I don't, and I think we're still figuring out what was the cost of the physical protection from the illness versus the mental health devastation. Absolutely. I think, uh, it's something that we have been fighting over so much. And I think people don't necessarily realize that they're making very different assumptions when they have these fights or these conversations about the risks and the trade-offs. It's particularly so poignant with children because of the the age risk graph of this disease is different from a lot of diseases, right? There's so many more diseases that are dangerous and scary for children, infectious diseases, um, much more so, right, than adults. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case here. Um, we also have such a safety culture around children, you know, in America having to do with, um, wanting to keep them safe at all costs essentially, and, and making that about their physical safety. And I think you've probably been one of the people, right. Who's talked about how, um, we, you know, sometimes we're trying to keep them so physically safe and we don't allow for that growth to happen. Right. 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 And this was such an extended version of that. Right. Where we said, well, body and body is the most important thing. And it is. But how do we measure the relative risks and trade-offs? Bars were open and schools were closed. Like, how do we reconcile that? We have to answer for that. We have to talk about that. Because America 
And particularly blue state America was the place where that happened. Hmm. You know, so after the initial lockdowns, which were not controversial all over the world, countries started setting priorities. In Europe, the global health authorities were extremely clear in stating that children should be put first in all the decisions that they made. And so in later lockdowns, they always prioritize children's nurseries and schools over other accommodations. And that's just something we didn't, we had a lack of coordination. We put business interests above children's interests and this was the result. Mm -hmm. You followed several families around the country, uh, first with Zoom and then eventually, you know, face to face once that was possible. Yeah. I imagine I was just imagining your relationship as I was reading about your relationship with these families. And, you know, tell it, tell everyone about a few of these families and their journeys and struggles. So I think one of the ones that I think about the most is Jeannie because so Jeannie teaches school in rural Oklahoma and uh, she and her family are members of the Cherokee nation there. And she has attended the same school since she was five years old that she now teaches in and all of her children have attended it as well. It's a, it's a kindergarten through high school, very rundown with different parts of it built in different decades. And she loved school so much. It was so important to her. The education, the value of education was so important to her and it was so hard for her. And I think she ended up feeling like it was almost like a trauma response for her and for so many people in her community when school shut down because it was the loss of that safe place and that routine place. Mm-hmm. And what was also fascinating about getting to know Jeannie and her five kids was that they were each at different developmental stages and they each had very different paths when it came to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So her youngest were eight-year-old twins when the pandemic started, first grade. And they were kind of in the bosom of the family. You know, they seemed they seemed to roll with the punches. They seemed to pretty much, they always had each other to play with. They kept up with their studies. They were so resilient. The 10-year-old, who I call Ruby in the book in the middle, stepped up as a second mother, head of the household. And, you know, her mother said, it broke my heart to do it, but to see it, but I also needed it so much. And when I went to visit Ruby, I say in the book, you know, she she made me a pie and she knitted me a hat. (laughs) <laughs> like she just said, and so she took so much pride in it, but also it's, it's, it's adultification. It's more than a kid needs should be doing. Right. 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 The middle son, 13 years old was the most socially isolated, had the, had no out of the house connection and developed suicidal ideation a year in to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then the oldest boy, really talented, really charismatic, really smart, uh, started working at Sonic because that was the place he was allowed to go mm-hmm. when schools were closed. He stayed remote because his mother was worried about COVID with having, she had to go back into the classroom because Oklahoma opened its schools and had almost no mitigations. So her logic was I'll, te- I'll keep the kids remote mm-hmm. as much as I can. So he's working, he's not at school and his grades slide. He loses the thread essentially with his education. And by the time he picks it back up again, it's too late. He's lost his, the Oklahoma Promise Scholarship. Hmm. He's not going to college. Hmm. There's so many iterations throughout like, throughout the country, as you point out. You know, there's blue places, there's red places. 
um, there were themes, there are themes in blue places and red places of um, how these things were handled. There's intra-family situations. There's, I mean, there's, there's community situations. Um, you have, it's seeming like this divide got it, it, larger. The, the chasm, the chasm, got, it's got larger between people who could work at home somehow and hold on to their jobs and parent, and then other people who had to choose between making an income and caring for their kids. Um, and we still, while there was governmental aid, you point out that only does so much. Well, it didn't get there fast enough because uh, kids need to eat every day. And so right after the pandemic started and schools locked down, they pivoted really fast to giving out sandwiches and parking lots, but child hunger skyrocketed at that moment. And the amount of dislocation just economically was huge with parents, you know, having to quit their jobs because they didn't have childcare or losing jobs because places closed. So this was absolutely, you know, um, an economic disaster, uh, just as it was a, a public health disaster. And the difference is that America doesn't have the social welfare system in place that other countries do. So we don't have that child tax credit. We don't have that that automatic paid leave. Some of the parents that I met, this was their first time ever home with their kids. <laughs> you let that mm-hmm. sink in. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Patricia in D.C., she had her baby and went back to work the next month because she worked in the D.C. public schools and she, in order to get a paid leave, she would have had to go on unemployment. So this was her first time home with her toddler. And it was extremely hard, but there was part of it that she actually appreciated, which is a, kind of a sad statement, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You wrote, quote, the story of what happened to children during the pandemic isn't over by a long shot. The decisions that led us here were made by powerful adults over centuries. We're still the ones in charge and there is time to make it right. We are at the start of what must be a generation-long process of redressing harms done to children. This is not the last global crisis they're going to see in their lives. This is a perilous world indeed we have brought them into. It's our responses now that will be decisive going forward. That's a lot. Everybody who cares for children knows on some level that you're responsible for making a better future because you have these kids and you want them to have a better life. I just want people to understand that that's a collective responsibility. We hold that in common and every kid matters, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. These kids have a chance. Like the reason it matters so much is because they're not doomed. They're not done for. It doesn't matter what happened to them. They can come back. They can thrive again. They can learn. They can rediscover their, I mean, so because we ha- because we know that, that's why we have to be- work so hard to make a better life for these kids. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately have hope. You're, you, you end with hope. And I see that look on your face. I see you are a hopeful person. How do we get there? How, how when, you put the, when, you, when you pull all these threads, and here we mm-hmm. still are in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, what needs to happen? Oof. I mean, you want me to answer that on a family level, a school level, a society, globe? Yes. <laughs> um, 
Well, for parents out there, I think that there's work to do kind of processing and integrating this experience. Um, Depending on where your kids are and where they were in the pandemic, they probably had a really different experience. But talking about it is really important. Telling the story. um, I I talk in the book about a little bit of the research on post-traumatic growth, Mm -hmm. which can be fostered through the processes of narrative disclosure, narrative development, Mm -hmm. Um, telling stories, talking about what it meant, right? Emotional intelligence, developing that toolbox. Um, And then acts of service actually to others. So putting your experience in context through helping people that were, you know, were less fortunate as well. So we can do those things. We can talk to our kids about what, what happened. We can help them with the things they may have missed out on without having a super deficit mindset of, of, you know, oh, you're, you're, it was, so I was at the swimming yesterday, um, with my daughter and another man was there with his daughter and talking about, Oh, you know, Charlotte didn't get to have swimming lessons like her brother because of the pandemic and she's behind in her swimming. And I was like, she was like, and Charlotte was like, I'm scared to jump off the dock. And I was like, it's fine to be scared. It's great to, it's okay to be scared. We can be scared and still do it. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, you also talk about resilience, which we talk about a lot. We talk about a lot uh, conceptually. We talk about a lot with kids. Oh, kids are resilient. And you, so yes, kids are resilient. There are things we can do to help with post-traumatic growth. And as you also talk about post-COVID growth. And you also say, but yeah, guys, let's not just like, oh, kids are resilient. They'll be fine. There are a lot of kids who have really suffered and um, have, have really are bearing, have bared the impact of this pandemic and will be doing so for a long time. Yes, absolutely. And so, um, you know, schools right now, the majority of them, I think, really understand that mental health has come to the top of the priority list and they're creating new positions and tr- and scrambling to hire them. I think it's really, really important that we don't let the funding lapse. It's a, it's a very dangerous thing because we have so many schools that have lost enrollment and enrollment's based on headcount. This federal money that's come in has filled that for now, but like in New York City, they're looking at cutting the school budget because people are gone. And it's like, if you starve the schools, where do you think the kids are going to come from? Are they going to come back? I don't think so. So we need to keep the resources pumping so that kids who are in the schools can access what they need. Um, and then also it, it can't just be the schools. I mean, this is a very disappointing moment for us from a federal policy perspective, because um, it's amazing, you know, however you feel about the bill that just got passed with the climate legislation, the inflation legislation, you know, energy costs. But the thing that was deemed dispensable was the families providing Mm-hmm. measures in the bill, the the child care and the family leave and the child tax credit. And that's really disappointing for those of us who can see the need right now mm-hmm. and say, what are we doing wrong? How are we not communicating this so that we're people are allowed to forget about that? From all of your research, how does this continue to happen? Right, like this is response. This, these are the <laughs> things that are responsible for the tremendous uh, cracks, which have become huge. And yet, in a humongous aid p- 
package trying to tackle lots of different things, these are still the things that fall away, that get cut out. It's so tough because we heard the conversation change. We heard people say childcare is infrastructure. You know, we heard them say the child tax credit will cut child poverty by 50%. And it actually went into work. We saw it work. Um, 40%, but it, like they needed time to get it to all the kids that needed it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's been progress, but I think what's the legacy that's so hard is two things. Um, obviously, there's a very strong, you know, conservatism, which equates in two ways. One is the capitalist idea that we can't give handouts to people and everyone has to work in order to prove their worth. And the other part is the family values idea that, that and this is 150 years old, that helping families means undermining the breadwinner household, which newsflash is not a thing anymore. Like both parents have to work in order to survive in in this economy. But the image is if you give a mother and her children enough to live on, they will not find a man or they will not stay with a man and they will undermine the earning power of a man. Like that is how it has been for 150 years. And I think the messaging is still very strong. Like how do we get welfare reform and how do we impoverish families (laughs) <laughs> in that way and put in these work requirements. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> no. I mean, that that way of thinking is, is, uh, seems, while I'm aware of it, it seems very outdated and very uh, and not relevant to the I reality. completely agree. But I mean, it, 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 it's it's hard to see not see the pattern recurring. Oh, right? yeah. 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 Oh no, I I agree, I agree with you. I just yeah. as I hear you saying it, it's just I you don't even my mouth is open. It's like how do you how do you fight that? Like we have to do something different. Um, it we can talk conceptually all day long, and the bottom yeah. line is until people get what they need, our f- kids and our families uh, are many of them are in trouble. Do you know that during the pandemic, uh, states went into the pockets of non-resident fathers and took CARES Act money, pandemic relief money, out of their pockets and used it to as repayment for child support that the that the parents were the fathers were not giving to the mothers. So they were like, we the states made up for your child support payment that you were judged to have to pay. And so we're taking your pandemic relief. We're not giving it to your children, we're taking it back to pay us back. You're looking confused. Yeah, I like the first (laughs) half of that, which was I was waiting for you to say, and so they just gave it directly to the kids who needed it. They're their kids. Yes. Yeah. Right. Wow. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So... Depending on who you talk to, there's, there's, there's a lot of different experiences. And you write about some of the kids who are like, you know what? I'm living my best life. I, I didn't really like school. Um, another, I guess, a backstory to a lot of those kids, either whether they are introverted or have some social anxiety or just overwhelmed by the mass public system, um, they liked it. They didn't have to go out. They had the comfort of their home. So there, there are those kids. I don't know what percent there are, but I know in our practice, we definitely experienced that as well. 
Um, and a lot of parents, which are like, whoa, same types of parents, like, this is actually really nice. I don't really want to have to go back to all of these social gatherings and, and mm -hmm. be able. But then we had a huge number of kids who were isolated, who were not getting their physical or emotional needs met. We had a we had a epidemic of depression and anxiety going on for kids before the pandemic, which has skyrocketed. The suicide rate has skyrocketed the impact of suicide on our kids and the grief and trauma has skyrocketed. I mean, these are people who will not be the same. Of course, the families who lost their kids will never be the same. The kids that lost their close friends will never be the same. You just, you can integrate over time, but you are forever altered. And we still have this happening. And I can say from, you know, someone who has a center where we cannot meet the need, the mental health needs of the kids in our community. And so I'm finding myself very, um, you know, emotional about this. It feels overwhelming to when we really look at what is happening now while we are trying to move ahead and repair. And I don't even know if there's a question in there. I'm looking, for, <laughs> I'm looking for some. I'm looking for some uh, wisdom from you, Anya. I hear you. I. It must be so hard. I mean, on the one hand, it's amazing that you're in a position to help. But, uh, you know, I, I have a practitioner I talked to in the book where I was like, "Do you have more demand?" And he's like, "I don't know. We're always full. We're always full. We were full before the pandemic, and we're full now." Mm -hmm. So. The only thing that I can say is that I know for me, and I think for a lot of people I know, have learned basic literacy about mental health, understand more about navigating those conversations. I personally had the experience of referring more than one person to a therapist during the pandemic, getting making sure that they, you know, doing that warm handoff, making say, I found this person for you. Are you going to call them? Okay, let's make sure you call them. Right. So the more familiar we get with that the more lifesavers there are, the fewer bystanders, yes. the more, you know, the kid in my book told a friend, the friend told his mother, the mother told the counselor at school, the school counselor told mm -hmm. Jeannie, the mother, mm -hmm. and he got counseling, even in rural Oklahoma. That is a love, that is a love story. That's a true huge. story. That's huge, huge. Okay, silver lining. Yes, I like this. I like where you're going with this. Um, mental health support is getting, I believe, less stigmatized. Um, it seem seem it seems to be a regular thing that schools are trying to offer. Like you said, positions are popping out of the woodwork. They were they were they were there in some of these schools, but now people are really looking at this. I mean, so many schools have lost the lives of so many students that they they can't ignore this. Um, there's a new national hotline um, for suicidality that anyone can call. And there are more all, uh, creative alternatives. There's more online therapies, whether it's Talkspace or others where you can, um, and some really focused on teenagers. So there is an awareness of the mental health need. And as you point out, there's, it's like, there's, we have to triage this and 
we can't just keep reacting. We need to get ahead of this and support the infrastructure that creates health with and without a pandemic. Yeah, that's very well put. Um, have you looked into youth mental health first aid? No. Okay. So, um, I would just say, look it up. It's, it, it was, it was, um, invented in Australia and it's come to the U S, uh, about, uh, 2008, the number of practitioners has doubled during the pandemic. So there's been a huge upswelling of interest. It's basically a first aid training, very similar to, you know, it's eight hour training and it is helping people understand the signs, understand self-care techniques, how to handle that conversation, negotiate, whether it's drugs or it's eating disorder or it's, a, you know, a meltdown in the moment or depression, suicidality, what to notice, what to watch for, how to engage people. And um, it's got randomized controlled trial evidence behind it, not only for people feeling more efficacy in referrals, but also for individuals themselves and going through the training that they gain the, the self-care skills and, and the, the level of just community awareness goes up. So the more people get the training and they're even giving it to teenagers to help their peers. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Cause it's first aid, right? It's not going to replace the emergency room. It's right. not going to replace the doctor's care. But if somebody gets there and you're the person there, how can you help? Right, right. Okay, this is good. There are things that are there are things that are happening out there. Um, we're going from um, again. This is triage, right? This is crisis. There's crisis management, which many people are dealing with, and then there is different levels of managing health and mental health and providing different levels of care and support. And we know one of the main things that creates depression um, and makes it worse is isolation. Yes. So, right. So you have, this is why people need to be around people and, and why the, why the closures, the prolonged school closures was so detrimental at so many levels for our kids. I can't tell you the number of people who told me when we got the kid back into soccer or gymnastics or the thing that they loved, everything turned around. Mm -hmm. Even just the lack of physical activity, like we can't discount that itself. Right, right. So important. And that activation energy to actually get out and do stuff. Yes, yes, and, and foundational studies comparing exercise to medicine. <laughs> there are so many studies that show in many cases, they're equal. Uh, exercise is equal to medicine or can even be better. And this is not a statement uh, at all against um, pharmacology, which can be very helpful to people who are suffering. But just goes to show you how being sedentary and not being active, how bad that is. And conversely, again, being outside, being in nature. And we know the research on nature, just being around nature is healing as well. I can't tell you, all of that is so true, so true. I can't tell you, the youth sports people are tearing their hair out because in so many cases, youth sports restrictions continued even past school reopening and you know things. So it was like, we are bringing life-saving experiences to these kids and nobody's even noticing, you know? And, and, and it's tricky because there was transmission in high school sports, like that's been documented right. as well. So right. you're, th these again, balancing these very important interests. It is. And I, I do struggle with the, the debate over keeping the adults safe. Like, you know, kid, part of the closures were, yeah, it's not going to affect the kids as much or as bad 
but they're going to bring it home to vulnerable adults, right? Which is true to some, it's true. So it's, it's how do we balance? I mean, now we have vaccines and in our current iteration of COVID, the vaccines, I guess the, the current virus doesn't really care whether you're vaccinated or not, or whether you just had it. Um, you still can get it again and again and again, but where we are in history right now is um, hospitalizations are down. Every, all the, all the, the death and the hospitalizations, that is down, even though we still have a fairly high rate. Um, but how do you reconcile this, Anya, with the, the kids exposing adults who can be more greatly medically impacted? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just expand that out to say that, like all things, it follows equity lines in the United States, so that the there's a much higher rate of intergenerational households in low-income communities, in immigrant communities, in Asian communities, Hispanic communities. Mm-hmm. So the level of risk, it's very real, and the disproportionate impact is very real. And so whenever we make policies that are sweeping, or for me, with my privilege to make a pronouncement about policies is not okay, right? Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, on a public health level, we do have to have guidance for people. And I think that um, the more that we know and the more we know about the fact that this is not going away, the more that we have to um, just be very clear about the risk and the impact. And I know for the the grandparents in my orbit, including those who are immunocompromised, eventually made the decision that they want that exposure to their grandkids and they're willing to, to live with the risk. But that has to be informed. It has to be an informed risk. Um, mm-hmm. and we have to think about it. I mean, we have to think about the costs and the benefits, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I wish it was easy, but it's not. My, a close friend of mine's father wrote a letter to the school board because they, after they had opened up sports, they then closed it down and no one was able to watch. And he wrote this really powerful op-ed piece that basically said, but what he felt the decision was depriving the kids of their parents and the grandparents of, Mm -hmm. and that he felt that he had free will to choose if he wanted to put himself at risk by attending a game to support his grandchild and see his grandchild play while he's still able to, and that he felt that should be his decision and that decision not be taken from him. So that's just an example of these nuances. I just think too, Dan, that it's like, it's really important for us all to be humble because for all the restrictions that we've placed, there are very few differences between our country has one of the highest death rates from COVID in the world. And it is higher than countries who that are peer countries with high incomes that closed, that opened up their schools in the spring and the summer of 2020 and the fall of 2020 completely. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get anything for our closures and our restrictions when placed heavily on children. We didn't get anything tangible from closing schools during Omicron when mm-hmm. deaths were mounting in this past winter. We didn't get anything for continuing to mask two and four-year-olds and in, in, in daycares when other countries weren't doing that. So, you know, it's one thing to say like, okay, you don't want that on your conscience because it's a greater right. risk, but actually from a public health perspective, where, where can you point to the benefit? And again, hindsight. So it's like hindsight's always twenty twenty. But when does 
hindsight stop and present reality living start, right? Like when do we stop looking back and making decisions based on what is best all the way around? You know, that would require so much consensus building and so much agreement and people having the same, you know, the same visions of reality or accepting the same truths. And and we're we're just, just so far from any of that. Yeah. It's really hard. So we both agree that the pandemic is real. Mm-hmm. We both agree that the pandemic has killed lots of people. Um, you'll stop me if you're not agreeing with anything. I'm, <laughs> um, I read your book, so I kind of know where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, we agree that um, immunocompromised people are more vulnerable and worse things can happen to them. And as you're pointing out, even though we had all of the isolation, the quarantine, the school closures, our numbers still are worse than many, if not most, of the other nations, comparable nations, right? First world nations. Yes. Right? So we, we just go on living? Like, what, what, what are do, you know, as your title says, as your subtitle says, you know, where we go now? Where do we go now based on your research? So I think that the public health messaging has evolved with a popular understanding and honestly, a lot of fatigue, right? With a lot of these restrictions, but Mm. uh, the public health, I'm, I'm hearing American doctors and mainstream public health experts and federal officials sound a lot more like Europeans, in this 2022 year, we are going to keep schools open. We are not going to close schools. Um, now, are they doing everything? And the CDC has issued new um, restrictions, you know, get regulations that are far more lenient in terms of what are we, when are we going to close? How, are we going to mask kids? Or are we going to keep them home for 10 days? I mean, I, my book focused on 2020, but all the way into 2021, there were, I mean, I, I talked to a father whose son had done three 10 day, uh, quarantines in his first semester of fourth grade. That's not, that's absenteeism. That's not, you know, education. So understanding that's a priority. What are we going to do to make it a priority? We already talked about federal policies uh, from an economic perspective, because one thing that we, better than mask mandates, is paid leave for families, sick leave for parents when their kids are home. Mm -hmm. Keep the kids home when they're sick. How do you keep a school healthy? very clear before the pandemic, don't send sick kids to school. Mm -hmm. Don't send kids to school with a fever. Why do parents do that? They have nowhere for the kids to go. Right. How do we stop that? We give them money and we make employers understand that this is the condition. So, so these are like the not so little things. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not even talking about remedying the situation. We talked about mental health, but we have to talk about high dose tutoring. We have to talk about the supplemental work that kids need um, and how you design a curriculum so that you're focusing on, the most, the biggest priorities so that kids can continue to progress and be successful in school. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have lots to do. Um, (laughs) You, you quote Dr. Jack uh, Shonkoff, the director of the Center for Developing Kids at Harvard University, who said, this could affect a whole generation for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. He's not sugarcoating it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, I worry about the kids on the older end of the spectrum, um, like the oldest son in, in Jeannie's family that that drifted out of high school, 
the college enrollment numbers are way down. This is very worrisome. I worry about the very young kids who had their zero to three impacted by this. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say that it can affect them for the rest of their lives, this doesn't necessarily mean it has to mark them or stigmatize them. And right. I don't ever want to be associated with that. We can make it a time when we double down and we chose as a society to invest in the growth of kids and right. talked about it more than ever before and felt that urgency that's always been there. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why your book and these conversations are so important because we have to be talking about it. Um, I think as humans, we all like to just, well, I think it's a somewhat of a coping response. We just kind of keep moving forward and we try to pretend something that's terrible doesn't exist or doesn't impact us and we just keep moving forward. And um, that doesn't help our kids if we're not talking about their experience to your point, this health, this growth, this post COVID or post traumatic growth of let's talk about what we've all endured, where we are in history and what this has meant for all of us. And, um, talk about these narratives. And sometimes we don't know what our kids narratives, well, we don't know what our kids narratives are unless we actually hear it from them. Because a lot of kids, especially as they get older and teenagers, uh, there's a lot of internal processes that are going on. And we all make up our own stories to make sense of reality. It's very well put. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So if you're comfortable, what's the current status of your your family? And as, as someone who's been in the, you know, right in the middle of, <laughs> of talking about this, I imagine with them a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how, how is everyone? You know, I'm superstitious to answer that question. I have to say that, um, you know, I, I, I'm super proud of my kids and they got through this with a lot of grace. It was, uh, you know, three and eight years old when the pandemic hit, so five and 10 now. And, um, you know, there are social milestones. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's little things, I, there's interests that they may not have had as much time to develop. Um, but their patience and their flexibility that came from this, their ability to be in their own world together and to play. Um, they both love to read. They both love to draw. Um, the younger one loves to paint. The older one loves to make music. And so seeing them bring out that side of themselves I think for me as a parent too, like it, it's the whole family. Like I tried to be flexible. I tried to be relaxed and roll with the punches, but two years of deadlines getting pushed and things getting canceled and rescheduled and changed and changed and changed again. I finally feel like now I can say, I don't sweat the small stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> in a really different way. Yeah. I thought I was chill before. I was not chill before. I'm probably yeah. not still not that chill, but I'm more, way more chill than I ever would have been. And I think that's going to be yeah. the hope for them. Yeah. It does put things in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, who would have thought we would have a global pandemic? I mean, there are a lot of infectious disease experts who have thought this for a long time, but us, not us other, other kind of people. No, like you can't even make this stuff up. And we didn't even get into in this conversation because we don't have all day, everything else that has transpired during this time from from the BLM movement to the insurrection to um, depending on where you are in the country, the constant uh, devastation of our global climate change, whether it's floods or fires or hurricanes. Um, there's so much that our kids are living in 
And we're all trying to make sense of this as older adults who had our own stuff to live through, but not in this, um, the pace, like of the, the, the catastrophic things that have happened in such a short amount of time. I think we're, we're still reeling from it and not going to really be able to make sense of it until we move on. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, when I think about it a lot, actually, in terms of historically how people lived and what assumptions they made. And I think for me, I was born in 1980. So coming of age of what they call the end of history. And I turned, but then I turned 21, like four days after 9-11. So it was like, oh, maybe history's not over after all. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And um, just the, the, the times you come up in are such a harbinger of how you see the world, whether that's the depression or world war II. And I think now as well, and what I'm hoping our kids see is not just the utter chaos and the barrage of instances and events, but, you know, Mr. Rogers always says, look for the helpers, right? Yeah. Where, where are their solutions? Where, you know, can I draw my kids' attention to Greta Thunberg or to the, you know, Colin Kaepernick, people that kneel, people that march for peace, people that put their bodies out there, people that speak so eloquently, the the um, Parkland kids, you know, teenagers who are showing us the way and, and, right. and asking for a better future. Right. That's who I want my kids to look up to. Right. Yeah. And thank you for adding... Um, Parkland and of course my own coping and uh, denial and try, I mean, the right. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even throw in there um, the multiple mass shootings that have occurred in a very short amount of time. Um, all of the LBGTQ plus um, uh, progress and then obstacles. I mean, th- like it just goes on, it goes on and on and on. And so this show is about raising awareness um, on an individual basis and on a community and global basis. And this is this is what you're doing, Anya. You, this is what you're doing by this really important piece of work in this book that is just out. Thank you so much. I'm so proud to be a part of your show and all the great work that you're doing. It is time for the parent footprint moment question. You ready? Yes. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. So it's funny because when I saw this question, I I flashed in a moment that's actually quite literal to the name Parent Footprint. Um, which is that uh, I was postpartum, so first baby home, and I'm matching up her socks, as you do, you know. And I was holding these little tiny socks, and I just, I was like, I started to cry because I was like, how how am I going to be responsible for another person's socks? My own socks is enough, right? <laughs> but, like, there's another person. She has tiny toes, and I don't even, she can't even tell me if she's cold or hot. And suddenly I'm in charge of her socks. Mm, The metaphor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know what? She's 10 years old and she can handle her own socks now. So thank God. Uh, And you did handle her socks. More or less. She might have been barefoot once or twice. She might have stubbed her toes, but we made it. 
Yeah, the, oh man, the awareness of the responsibility and the obligation of taking care of another human. I, yeah. I think, I think from an evolutionary perspective, we're not meant to fully understand that until the babies come into our care. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Because who would sign up for it if you totally need, well, you do, you have a second kid. You decide to just multiply it all. Well, that's that other brain thing that we do. We go into denial and yes, yeah. Yeah, we're like, oh yeah, that was fine. Well, I'm glad to hear your family is navigating this this last two and a half year at this point adventure and they're navigating it um, with as much grace as possible. And I'm sure that a large part of that is um, having you as a parent to talk them through this and guide them through. Thank you so much. Tell everyone where all the places they can find your speaking, your latest work, and of course, your other wonderful books. Um, so my website is anyakamenetz.net. The book is The Stolen Year. It should be available where books are sold. I think the audiobook um, is getting a lot of interest that's out as well. And um, I also have a Twitter, Anya One Anya, and I have a newsletter. If you're interested, um, you can find that by Googling Anya Kamenetz newsletter. Awesome. Everyone, go out and get this beautiful book I'm holding in my hand and holding up to the camera right here. Um, it is The Stolen Year and more than the stolen year. You'll learn more about what is behind the stolen year, how it's impacting so many of our families and children in our country, and what we can do about it with an ending of hope. Thank you all for listening. Please share this with anyone and everyone that you know will benefit. We love having you part of our community. We so appreciate your five-star reviews. Continue, continue, continue to do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.